0: Let me take a moment to welcome you all again to this the the eighth collaboration between London's Social Affairs Unit and the New Criterion. On behalf of Michael Mossbacker and myself, let me say how delighted we are that you could uh, take time to join us. Now I've had a few questions about the name of Michael's organization, the Social Affairs Unit. It's such an ostentatiously anonymous name. That people have asked me whether it really is the successor to James Bond's universal exports or perhaps has some distant relation uh, with MI6. I-, I asked Michael about this, but he merely smiled and changed the subject, so I- you should just draw your own conclusions. Um, now, events such as these may seem to be like spontaneous cavalcades, blooming like the flowers that bloom in the spring, tra la but they they are not. Uh, The gloomy economic conditions that we're living through made putting together uh, this conference this year more difficult than it was in the past and we came within an ace of skipping the year actually. Um, So Michael and I are are more grateful uh, than than ever really for the people who helped make it possible. uh, One of whom just walked in. Uh, Michael Gleba and the Sarah Scaife Foundation. Michael, you should actually sit up here, I think. Uh, Ken Gilman, who's here somewhere, and Michael Saul, who's who's here somewhere. Uh, really, thank you so much. We we couldn't have done it without without your help. Um, and I, I'd also like to thank uh, Cali Siskel, uh, now wielding the the camera. Um, she is the genius Loki behind putting the conference together, and everyone who's been who's a participant anyway knows how how helpful she's been and I'm immensely grateful. Um, I said that, uh, that we almost skipped this collaboration uh, this year. I'm glad that we persevered. Our past collaborations have illuminated some very important topics from the future of the nation-state, the prospects of conservatism, uh, the recrudescence of anti-Americanism, a hearty perennial that, Um, Now, these are all important topics, but I think that this year's topic, the new statism and the assault on individual liberty, may be the most important, the most poignant, the most pressing, the most imperative that we've we've ever discussed. It seems everywhere we turn these days, we are given baleful reminders, not not only of how fragile a commodity freedom is, but also how rapidly, how amazingly rapidly it can be lost. I mean, small things to large. Here in New York, uh, our mayor has determined that uh, uh, he should be the one telling us how much salt uh, we eat. Uh, there are contemplations of a tax on soda pop. Uh, we, we may not uh, smoke cigarettes or cigars, well, almost anywhere now. Uh, is that really the state's business to decide that? But of course, those are local things, that's small things. Uh, what does it mean that the United States government, that the White House, uh, endeavored to partner with the National Endowment of the Arts, to turn the National Endowment of the Arts, the largest single funder of the arts in this country, into a propaganda arm for the agenda of a left wing president? Uh, fortunately, it's been exposed. I think that particular gambit is not going to happen, but it's a reminder uh, of how dire things really are and how, I mean, just imagine had George Bush tried to do that, what the outcry would have been. Well I wanted to say a word about how we're going to proceed uh, today. This is only the second time that we've included an audience so that changes the, the dynamics uh, considerably. Uh, the subjects we're going to be talking about are fraught ones and I'm sure that uh, m- many of you will have comments uh, or questions you'd like to pose. Uh, if you do, and this goes for the participants too, please Uh, speak into a microphone because we're recording it and in the case of the uh, case of of, of the audience if you uh, uh, want to make a contribution please identify yourself so that if we transcribe these we will know who it is who's who's speaking it it, it's pretty obvious who's speaking uh, from the panel but not always obvious who's speaking from the from the audience Um, uh, I'll say a few words by way of introduction then we'll go directly to uh, Andy McCarthy We'll have a bit of conversation among ourselves and then we'll, we'll open it up uh, to the floor. Uh, at around 10.30 or thereabouts, we'll have a, a brief leg stretching break and then come back for Mark Stein's paper. And we'll follow the same drill after lunch uh, this afternoon for those papers. Uh, a- again, I say if you wish to comment, please call her the microphone, Callie. Will, uh, we'll be walking around with it and identify yourself before speaking. Um, the one invited participant who had to drop out at the last moment was, um, was Bill Kristol, the editor of the Weekly Standard. Uh, as many of you know, uh, Daniel mentioned it last night, Bill's father, Irving Kristol, died last week. And Bill is in Washington attending to the sad aftermath that a, a parent's passing involves. Um, Daniel last night may, had some very opposite things to say about Irving's tremendous contribution to American culture, to American conservatism. And uh, I'd certainly like to associate myself with those sentiments. Had we convened this conference a few years ago, Irving is certainly someone we would have uh, thought of, of uh, inviting to participate. Uh, and if conferences were the sorts of things that one could usefully dedicate, I would propose dedicating this one to Irving's memory. He was a dear friend of many people at this table, myself included. Uh, and. Uh, He was also instrumental in helping many institutions. Daniel mentioned last night uh, the extraordinary range of institutions that Irving either started, helped to nurture, uh, or otherwise um, fructified. Uh, Among them, by the way, uh, was the new criterion. Irving helped to start the new criterion, and he was, in fact, its first uh, chairman of, of the new criterion's governing board. I think few people in our time have been more alert to the totalitarian temptation in all its guises or the ways in which intellectuals aiming at utopian goals actually enable schemes that undermine freedom. Although we've seen a sudden upsurge in statist sentiment in this country and in Europe, Governor Mitch Daniels I think got it exactly right when he spoke of the Obama administration's shock and awe statism I think it's important to understand that statism and the blandishments of socialism are really perennial temptations. I, I uh, hope you all got the cartoon that, that we uh, put into your packet, um, which comes from the Chicago Tribune, 1934. Uh, it has a contempor- an amazingly contemporary feel to it. Uh, here you have a, uh, a bunch of intellectuals from Harvard, Columbia, and elsewhere right on this riotous ride spending depleting the resources of the of the soundest government in the world plan of action for the u.s. spend 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 et cetera et cetera well everything that's old is is new again and what was true in 1934 uh... seems to be coming round yet again um, but the point is that were were these n- merely novelties or uh you know, tied to some particular historical moment, the temptation of statism and everything that comes in its, in its, in its wake would not be as dangerous as they really are. I think Irving, Irving Kristol was particularly sensitive to the role of intellectuals in what we might call the metabolism of this debate. And I'd like to start by quoting from a speech he gave to the American Enterprise Institute way back in 1973. <clears throat> For two centuries, Irving wrote, the very important people who manage the affairs of this society could not believe in the importance of ideas until, until one day they were shocked to discover that their children, having been captured and shaped by certain ideas, were either rebelling against their authority or seceding from their society. The truth is, Irving wrote, that ideas are all important. The massive and seemingly solid institutions of any society, the economic institutions, the political institutions, the religious institutions, are always at the mercy of the ideas in the heads of the people who populate those institutions. The leverage of ideas is so immense that a slight change in the intellectual climate can and will, perhaps slowly, but nevertheless inexorably, twist a familiar institution into an unrecognizable shape. 1973. Well, I think that the ideas that are percolating down from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and Capitol Hill these days uh, show that that's true. They are not new ideas. uh, And indeed, that is one of the depressing things about this new statism. It inspires a sense of what the philosopher Yogi Berra called deja vu all over again. We've been down this road before. We know where it leads. It is that forlorn highway that Friedrich Hayek called the road to serfdom. Do we really want to travel down that road again? Perhaps the best anatomy of the sorts of statist uh, initiatives that we see popping up all around us these days was given nearly two centuries ago by Alexis de Tocqueville in his dissection of what he called democratic despotism. In a justly famous passage of democracy in America, Tocqueville anatomized this tutelary despotism that does not tyrannize, but rather infantilizes. Democratic despotism, unlike despotisms of old, prefers the carrot to the stick. The end is the same, conformity and the consolidation of power. But the preferred means to this end is not terror, but dependence. Accordingly, Tocqueville writes, Democratic despotism hinders, compromises, enervates, extinguishes, dazes, and finally reduces each nation to being nothing more than a herd of timid and industrious animals, sometimes not so industrious, of which the government is the shepherd. Well, I think for decades, the United States, with occasional protesting movements in the other direction, has been drifting toward the shoals of this enslavement. With the ascension of our current president, and his plans to inspan us all in his spread the wealth around socialism, we are nearing the point of shipwreck. The devilish genius of this form of tyranny, as the commentator Michael Ledeen pointed out, is that it looks and even acts democratic. <coughs> After all, we still have elections, we elect our representatives, and they still ask for our support. Freedom, Ledeen points out, is smothered without touching the institutions of political democracy. They still exist. We act out our democratic skits while submitting to an oppressive central power that we ourselves have chosen. A depressing fate. The element of seduction that is central to this sort of managerial despotism is one of the things that makes it so hard to resist. Its power, Tocqueville noted, is absolute, minute, regular, provident and mild. It would like to be the authority of a parent if, like that authority, its object was to prepare men for manhood. But it seeks, on the contrary, to keep us in perpetual childhood. It is well content that the people should rejoice, provided that they think of nothing but rejoicing. For their happiness, such a government willingly labors But it chooses to be the sole agent and the only arbiter of that happiness. It provides for their security, foresees and supplies their necessities, facilitates their pleasures, manages their principal concerns, directs their industry, regulates the descent of property, and subdivides their inheritances. What remains but to spare them all the care of thinking and all the trouble of living? Well, I mentioned Hayek a few moments ago. In The Road to Serfdom, Hayek reminds us that the onslaught of socialism has an internal as well as an external aspect. That is to say, socialism is not only something that states do to individuals, it is also something that individuals do to themselves when they decide that freedom is just too expensive to fight for and that the the consolations of dependency are worth (coughs) the tax of individual liberty. One really depressing thing about all the renewed calls for increased government intervention, more regulation, bailouts for everyone, is what it portends for the future of freedom. In The Road to Serfdom, Hayek quoted David Hume's observation that it is seldom that liberty of any kind is lost all at once. A little here, a little there, and then all of a sudden, it's gone. The biggest challenge we face now is not to our stock portfolios or 401k accounts, I guess they're now called 201k accounts, but rather the psychological conditions for political liberty, among which a spirit of individual initiative, that is, taking responsibility for ourselves and our families, figures prominently. As Hayek observed, the most important change which extensive government control produces is a psychological change, an alteration in the character of the people and that's what we really face today and it doesn't happen all at once you don't in a modern democracy go to go to bed on Friday feeling free and then wake up in chains on Saturday it takes as Hyatt notes perhaps one or two generations my question is where are we in that process are we at the beginning are we at the middle are we near the end I don't know the answer to that but one crucial point is that the political ideals of a people and its attitude toward authority are as much the effect as the cause of the political institutions under which it lives this means among other things that even in a strong tradition of political liberty uh, that even a strong tradition of political liberty is no safeguard if the danger is precisely that new institutions and policies will gradually undermine and destroy that spirit if you ask where does it all tend where are we going what the change or alteration that socialism ie extensive government control brings what happens to the character of a people I think you need look no further than Hayek's title the road to serfdom Tocqueville and Hayek's observations are so familiar that I hesitated to trot them out once again I'm sure you've all uh, read them many times but as I listened to our leaders tell critics to get out of the way get out of the way, Obama said, so that they can enact their ruinous energy legislation or appropriate a sixth of the U.S. economy under the banner of health care reform. I wonder whether the significance of Tocqueville and Hayek is really as familiar as it need be. Last October, <clears throat> shortly before the election, Barack Obama told a crowd of his acolytes that they were only a few days away from, and I quote, fundamentally transforming the United States of America. Now. The United States of America, at least at that time, was the richest, the freest, the mightiest nation the Earth had ever seen. Which of those things do you suppose Barack Obama wanted to fundamentally transform? People say a lot of grandiose things on the campaign trail, of course. And I suspect that many people regarded Obama's statement as mere hustings hyperbole. I'm not so sure. Since January 20th, 2009, we've seen that he apparently is in earnest about transforming the United States of America from a country dedicated to democratic capitalism and individual liberty into a socialist regime in which egalitarianism not individual freedom provides the guiding principle one of Obama's primary tools to accomplish this goal is money that ubiquitous but deeply mysterious power that is one of the world's greatest engines of liberty but also can be when misused, it can collude in our enslavement. In his book, The Servile State, Hilaire Belloc observed that the control of the production of wealth is the control of human life itself. This is something I I, uh, believe that the Obama administration has grasped instinctively. When it comes to money, Obama seems curiously divided in his mind. On the one hand, he's not averse to spending gobs and gobs of it millions, billions, trillions. Someone mentioned last night they saw a bumper sticker uh, that said it's a good thing that Obama doesn't know what comes after a trillion.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's always more, he seems to think, where that came from. It's the what you might call the spigot theory of economics. You just turn the handle of government authority, and presto, the tax receipts, the fees, the garnishments, the sundry redistributed adjustments flow in like rainwater after a storm. I wonder, as a kind of aside, maybe uh, uh, some of the more economically literate of our panelists will have something to say about this, I wonder what Obama is thinking now that the tax receipts of this country have more or less collapsed. Where is the money going to come from? Well, it's going to come from, from us, of course, but... Uh, it's curious though, of Obama's attitude toward money. Uh, he sees it as a great tool, a great weapon even, of social reconstitution. There are piles and piles of it around. He can see it. And all he needs to do, he thinks, to fulfill his campaign promise to fundamentally transform the United States of America, is move some of the rather hefty piles from your squares on the game board over to the squares marked nationalized health care, educational reform, fairness, and so on. On the one hand, Obama is suspicious of money. He seems to believe that it carries a moral taint, especially when any significant amount of it finds its way into the hands of ordinary citizens. I don't mean to suggest, by the way, uh, that he has any personal objection to money. Clearly, he thinks it's okay that his wife pads off to a uh, local soup kitchen for a photo op and her running shoes that cost $540. Now that, that's fine. But in the larger sense, when he thinks about society as a whole, he deprecates wealth and the acquisitive instincts that make it, its accumulation possible. He's not, of course, alone in this. He's, this is not a novelty. Jean Jacques Rousseau thought the same thing. So did Karl Marx. And so do countless other would be benefactors of mankind. Last spring, when the Obama administration took over General Motors and forced out GM's chairman, Rick Wagoner, one commentator spoke of the tectonic change in the relationship between business and the government that this extraordinary intervention on the part of the federal government signaled. Time was, the role of government in a capitalist society was primarily to secure an environment in which private enterprise could thrive and cell phones would depart. Yes. <laughs> Today, the role of government is increasingly to nationalize private enterprise. That is, to destroy it in the name of a higher good. What Obama has called in the title of, <laughs> the ironical title of his new budget, since when did presidents give titles to their budget, a new era of responsibility in which government bureaucrats tell you how to run your business, whom to employ, how much to pay them, what kind of light bulbs you can use uh, and so on. A tectonic change in the relationship between business and the government. Well, remember that phrase and note that tectonic, that means fundamental, that kind of change between business and the government is also a tectonic, a fundamental change between the individual and the government, it's not just between GM and the government, it's also between you and the government. What our generation has forgotten, Hayek noted in The Road to Serfdom, is that a system of private property is the most important guarantee of freedom, not only for those who own property, but scarcely less for those who do not. The tectonic change in the relationship between business and government, between the individual and government, signals not only the expansion of government control, it also signals the contraction of individual freedom in the name of what Obama calls fairness. Fairness. Whenever I hear the word fairness, I reach for my revolver. Why? Well, from the very beginning of his campaign, Obama made it clear that economic fairness, not economic prosperity, was his political lodestar he made it clear but I'm not sure we really understood what he meant fairness that's that's a good thing isn't it we've been taught since children that we should be fair who could be against fairness but what if by fairness he meant not impartial justice but equalized outcomes what if by fairness he meant spreading the wealth around that's that's your wealth that he wants to spread around what then who can doubt Hayek asked that the power which a multiple millionaire who may be my neighbor and perhaps my employer has over me is very much less than that which the smallest functionary possesses who wields the coercive power of the state on whose discretion it depends whether and how I am to be allowed to live or to work. The smallest bureaucrat if any of you have been to the DMV recently, the Department of Motor Vehicles soon to be the the, uh, DMV or the DHV or whatever, the, 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 the similar sort of bureaucracy overseeing healthcare. Just think about what those petty bureaucrats can do to you. The chapter of The Road to Serfdom in which the words I just quoted appear is called Who, Whom? Question mark. The question that, Lenin said, was the fundamental fulcrum of all politics. Who, who does it, and to whom do they do it? Hitherto, the genius of the American system has been to short circuit that question by distributing the power of the subject. Lenin's who is no longer a central and centralizing authority, but a multiplicity of actors, each with his own native interests and prerogatives. That's what was so great about America. Many people with their own interests pursuing them, as the Declaration of Independence said, the pursuit of liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what we were about, were about. Edmund Burke spoke of the importance to liberty of those little platoons that claim our daily allegiance—our family, our clubs, the uh, the sports uh, teams that were that were interested in all of the associations that that that, that we form as as Americans—and and learning, of course, from from the Brits. James Madison in Federalist 51 made a similar point when he observed that the policy of supplying by opposite and rival interests, all the different rival interests that we have these supply the defect, he said, of better motives. The motive of fairness, say. The motive of uh, uh, an era of responsibility in Obama's words. They helped encourage the distribution of power and hence the growth of liberty. The tectonic change contemplated by the Obama administration would have us disband those little platoons and assimilate ourselves to the swarming army of the state. Madison's opposite and rival interests for these collectivists impede the progress of fairness and interrupt the progress, the process of equalizing wealth. Earlier in the Federalists, Madison observed that there were two methods of removing the causes of faction. One, by destroying the liberty, which is essential to its existence. If we don't have the liberty to protest and be factionalized, uh, then that's not a problem. The other is by giving every citizen the same opinions, the same passions, and the same interests. Madison thought it self-evident that both courses being hostile to liberty spelt disaster. He believed that the protection of that diversity of faculties which underwrote uh, which underwrote the diversity of property was the first object of government. That's what government was there to do was to protect that kind of diversity, prosperity, individual initiative. Our current masters in Washington however disagree they seem perfectly willing to experiment with both of the expedients that uh, Madison warned against, destroying liberty on the one hand and enforcing conformity on the other. Last March, it was Rick Wagoner who had to go. Just a few days ago, we read again that the government wishes to determine how much banks will pay their employees. Tomorrow, who can say? When a tectonic change takes place, an awful lot can happen awfully fast. One of the most rebarbative features of Obama's effort to bring government control to a life near you is its combination of the antiseptic rhetoric of utilitarian social science on the one hand with old-fashioned central planning on the other. Consider Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, the brother of Obama's Chief of Staff, Rahm Emanuel. Now, Ezekiel is a top White House advisor on health care reform. Doctor Emanuel has famously argued that doctors take the Hippocratic oath too seriously. First, do no harm. No, no, we can't. We, that's something we've gone beyond now in this brave new world. Doctor Emanuel wants you to concentrate medical services not on those who need it most—the elderly, say, seriously impaired children, and so on—but on those who he says are most likely to contribute to quote the continuation of the polity and quote who ensure healthy future generations and so on. Services provided to individuals who are irreversibly prevented from being or becoming participating citizens, he he wrote, are not basic and should not be guaranteed. So, do you have a loopy grandparent who, or a kid who's playing with half a deck? What can they contribute to the continuation of the polity or healthy future generations? The internet blogger Glenn Reynolds made the observation amusing and scary in equal measure, I think, that what we're dealing with here bears an awful similarity to the troubled Cash for Clunkers program. First, grandma's caprice, then grandma.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> one of the most depressing things about all these government expropriations is the fact that they operate like a one way ratchet wrench, undermining freedom and extending the control of the state. They only go in one direction once the government sinks its teeth into you, it's extremely difficult to wiggle free. Remember, the income tax and the social security tax, these were both temporary, emergency measures. That's why 1895 is one of my favorite years in U.S. history. In that banner year, the Supreme Court ruled that income tax was unconstitutional. Needless to say, that ruling didn't last long. Ultimately, I suspect, Obama is so ostentatiously committed to what he calls health care reform, not for medical, but for political reasons. By appropriating another sixth of the U.S. economy, he will not help Americans live longer or lead healthier lives, but he will greatly extend the government's prerogatives over the details of your life. Contemplating the Democrats' almost fanatical push to enact health care now, today, I thought of Ronald Reagan's warning about how socialists so often use health care as a wedge to extract not only money but also freedom, including the freedom of choice from the citizenry. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people, Reagan, Reagan observed back in the 1970s, has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who possibly cannot afford it. The name of that reluctance, that reluctance to deny uh, medical care is compassion. Now compassion is a noble human emotion but it can be exploited by unscrupulous politicians and twisted into a self flagellating orgy of guilt on the one side and the self-regarding emotion of virtue on the other a toxic combination. And this brings me Finally, to another aspect of Obama's program. There is, he said, a moral imperative to health care. Is there? What he meant was that if you agree with his proposal, then you are an upstanding citizen who deserves the warm, self-regarding glow of moral infatuation. If you disagree with him, however, you are a greedy, selfish, unenlightened person who needs, well, the president hasn't gotten around to that part of the scenario yet. I suspect what, what James Pearson calls Punitive liberalism will come into the picture. Maybe we can talk about that. One thing we do know is that if you, whether you disagree with him or not, uh, in pushing his program, if he succeeds, you can expect anyone who's solvent, even marginally solvent, can expect much higher taxes. I doubt whether most of the people who turned up at town hall meetings and Tea Party meetings this summer to express their dismay about the president's plans to revolutionize American health care had Tocqueville or Hayek in mind. But the people that the White House press secretary Robert Gibbs disparagingly referred to as the Brooks Brothers Brigade, because unlike the people at the G20 meeting, they didn't actually riot. They, you know, dressed nicely where they were polite and so on, merely uh, exercising their civil liberties. Uh, I think that These people understand that there's an awful lot at stake in the controversy over the future of healthcare. It's not just a question of what doctors you can see when, or even what sort of doctors there will be available to be seen in a government-run healthcare consortium. No, it's a question of what Ronald Reagan called imposing statism in the name of uh, pursuing a humanitarian project. More and more people are waking up to the fact that statism is what lurks behind, and not very far behind, the democratic plans for health care. <coughs> they sense it and they don't like it. This, I think, provides a glimmer of hope, a silver lining, if you will, to the specter of statism that is haunting us. I rely on my fellow participants to restore a healthy modicum of gloom explaining, by explaining why we would be ill advised to put too much faith in that silver lining or hope in those assenting voices. But there is that silver lining, and now to uh, to uh, help restore the gloom, I'm going to turn things over to Andy McCarthy. Yeah.
3: Thank you so much, Roger. Uh, my paper is called uh, "Speaking of Gloom: uh, The Islamist Left versus the Constitution." No question about it, the press release pronounced, our health care system is broken. To fix it, an enlightened reformer, President Barack Obama, is doing his best to fulfill a solemn promise of change, a dramatic overhaul to provide guaranteed irrevocable health insurance coverage for every every person in America, while cutting costs, uh, in order to lift the United States from its lowly 37th place showing, in the World Health Organization survey of 191 countries. As the press release said, the only developed nation in the world which does not offer some type of viable health care solution to its citizens. The President is being undone, however, by, as they called it, intimidation tactics and the politics of fear, practiced by forces opposed to basic social justice. The press release elaborated that the saddest of all in this spectacle is what has happened to that cherished backbone of participatory democracy, the Congressional Town Hall meeting. Historically, this communal coming together has purportedly been a forum for civil discourse between elected officials and their constituents. In recent times, though, such assemblages have been hijacked, as they said in the press release, turned into mob-style melees where blatantly false accusations and fear-inducing tactics have been used to coerce elected officials. Our beleaguered representatives have been compared to Nazis. Dazed seniors have been duped into believing that death panels are part of the real plan. In fact, at one presidential town hall, a communal gathering of even richer pedigree in the age of Obama, dissenters were allegedly brandishing firearms. Alas, These tactics are not confined to the hot-button issue of health care. They have spread the release concluded to public discourse on many critical issues facing our nation. Whether it is health care, national security, foreign policy, or immigration, the conversation on these issues is being held hostage by various groups and individuals whose sole purpose is to use fear and misinformation to further their own agenda. If all this sounds like the rote leftist argument ad hominem with a pastiche of suspect statistics, it should. And countering the claims is beyond the scope of this paper. There's no need here to rehearse healthcare reforms, rationing its ruinous redistribution, its fast track to euthanasia, or the fact that it was public, top public officials who first referred to the public as Nazis, not the other way around. For present purposes, the point is not the message, but the messenger. This familiar litany was put out not by the usual Democratic Party operatives or Soros-funded activists. The champion of Obamacare in this instance is the Muslim Public Affairs Council, the press release issued by MPAC's National Community Development Director. Such a title benumbs us. In today's Washington, community development directors are a dime a dozen. Nonetheless it is a mistake to gloss over this term too quickly in the case of Muslim activists. Eight years removed from the stunning atrocities of 9-11, 16 years after jihadists declared war on the United States by bombing the World Trade Center, we remain largely in the dark about Islam. From the first, public officials have feverishly denied any nexus between Muslim doctrine and savagery, insisting that the root cause of modern terrorism is poverty, wounded pride, militarism, Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, George W. Bush, or, of course, Israel. Any intimation that there might be the tiniest connection between Islam and Islamic terror is cause for banishment from polite society, and consequently there has been scant attention paid to what Muslims in general believe. For hundreds of millions of Muslims, though, national community development is what it's all about. Islam is not principally about the individual. Its preoccupation is the Ummah, the Muslim nation. The religion is at least as focused as on dominance in this world as in as on salvation in the next. Its central imperative is the communal obligation to establish and spread Sharia, Allah's law, throughout the world to create Islamic societies, to create and expand the caliphate. Yes, Islam is intensely concerned about the individual. It aspires to dictate every facet of the individual's life. Primarily though, this is because the individual is a cog in the Muslim wheel. And that is not just how terrorists see it. Contrary to received Western wisdom, that view is entirely mainstream, if not preponderant, in the Muslim world. In 2007, polling by the University of Maryland surveyed a spectrum of Muslims from across the globe two-thirds, 65.5%, said they would endorse a requirement of strict application of Sharia law in every Islamic country and would like to see all Muslim countries unified under a single caliphate. This position was even shared by half of Indonesian Muslims who were thought with justification to be among the most moderate and pluralistic in the world. In today's Indonesia, Islamism is ascendant, particularly in Assay, where Sharia is now the provincial law and where the local parliament last year enacted a time-honored penalty of stoning to death for adultery. Uh, Homosexuals and those who engage in premarital sex got off a little bit lighter, a hundred strokes of a rattan cane. We tend to think of Muslim interest groups as focused exclusively on the national security arena. This too misapprehends several important points the Muslim interest groups that have the attention of Washington and other power centers in the West are predominantly Islamist it is a commonplace error to equate Islamist with terrorist the term Islamist was coined over three-quarters a century of a century ago by Muslim Brotherhood founder Hassan Albana while it includes violent jihadists it is very far from limited to them rather Islamism which we like to imagine is saliently different from mainstream Islam whatever that is is a belief system that holds Islam to be the complete obligatory and virtually non-negotiable guide to human existence its foundation Sharia aspires to govern all matters political social cultural and religious from cradle to grave and of course beyond properly understood Islamism encompasses not merely terrorists willing to commit atrocities in order to impose Sharia, but the hundreds of millions of believers who, to a greater or lesser degree, share the goal of creating and preserving Sharia societies. Back since the 1950s by billions in mostly Saudi funding, the Muslim Brotherhood's uh, martyred theorists Hassan al-Banna and Sayyid Qutb, as well as its current jurisprudential authority, Sheikh Yusuf Qaradawi, exert an enormous influence on Islamist organizations in the West. MPAC is no exception. One of its founders, Hassan Hatut, describes himself as a close disciple of Bana. Hatut's brother, Maher, a senior MPAC advisor, is lavish in his praise of Hezbollah and of Hassan al turabi the leader of Sudan's National Front, who hosted al-Qaeda during the early 1990s. On September 11, 2001, MPAC executive director Salam al mariadi was quick to caution against the conclusion that the suicide hijacking attacks were necessarily the work of Muslim terrorists. If we're going to look at suspects, he told the Los Angeles radio station, we should look at groups that benefit the most from these kinds of incidents. And I think we should put the state of Israel on the suspect list. Yet even with this unsavory background, MPAC has grown in stature thanks in no small part to the waning gravitas of CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Another Muslim Brotherhood satellite, but one whose support of Hamas, to say nothing of its members entangled in terrorism investigations, resulted in its being branded an unindicted co-conspirator by the Bush Justice Department during a recent terrorism uh, financing prosecution. MPAC officials are called on for congressional testimony on a plethora of issues. They are among the Islamist groups regularly consulted by law enforcement and intelligence agencies for the purpose of instructing, which is to say, indoctrinating our agents on Islamic concepts while dispensing cultural sensitivity training. They are, moreover, a media fixture. They are presented constantly as the voice of mainstream Islam. In comparison to American public opinion, that voice is about as mainstream. As the voice of the self proclaimed centrist pragmatist now occupying the Oval Office, Barack Obama, in whom MPAC and the Islamist movement have found a reliable friend. Like the Muslim Brotherhood, MPAC and other Islamist organizations have a wide ranging platform of virulently anti capitalist positions on economic issues. MZudi Jasser, an anti Islamist activist, aptly describes these organizations as collectivist groups. They fall in line with the Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood's socialist aims to, as he puts it, increase the power of government through entitlement programs, increase taxation, restricting free markets whenever and wherever possible. In actuality, though, the Brotherhood's aims are far more ambitious than that. At the aforementioned terrorism financing trial in which CARE was implicated, the Justice Department presented a startling Brotherhood memorandum obtained by the FBI. The document had been prepared in 1991 by Mohammed Akram, who was the organization's top leader in America. Writing for what he obviously thought was brotherhood eyes only, Akram didn't mince words. And here's what the memorandum said. The brotherhood must understand that their work in America is a kind of grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their hands and the hands of the believers so that it is eliminated and God's religion is made victorious over all religions. In fact, this grand jihad by sabotage has been underway for nearly half a century. Its bottom-up elements have stressed Islamist domination of Muslim education, community centers, and mosques. That means it is now raising in our midst its third generation of operatives and activists. Organizations like MPAC are the inevitable result. Nor is the 1991 memo the civilizational jihad's only smoking gun. In, 19, in 1977, Yousef Nada, a master organizer who has been a Brotherhood member since the 1940s, convened a meeting of Islamist luminaries, including Sheikh Karadawi of the Brotherhood in Lugano. Its purpose was to set up a structure to guide the growth of political Islam in Europe and the United States. Further, Because the Swiss bank he was directing, that is NADA, was long suspected of laundering money for al-Qaeda and Hamas, NADA's posh villa was raided by Swiss authorities right after 9-11. As Patrick Poole recounts, and I'm quoting Poole here, included in the document seized was a 14-page written plan in Arabic dated December 1, 1982, which outlines a 12-point strategy to, quote, establish an Islamic government on Earth identified that is the document was identified as the project um, according to testimony given to swiss authorities by Nada, it was prepared by operatives of the muslim brotherhood what makes the project so different from the standard death to america death to israel islamic rhetoric is that it represents a flexible multi-phase long-term approach to cultural invasion of the west calling for the utilization of various tactics ranging from immigration infiltration surveillance, propaganda, protest, deception, political legitimacy, and terrorism, the project has served for more than two decades as the Muslim Brotherhood master plan. Rather than focusing on terrorism as the sole method of group action, as is the case with Al Qaeda, in perfect postmodern fashion, the use of terror falls into a multiplicity of options available to progressively infiltrate, confront, and eventually establish Islamic domination over the West. The seizures of the Brotherhood's playbooks leave no doubt about its intentions. As aptly described by a former U.S. intelligence analyst, Joseph Myers, these Islamists seek nothing less than the usurpation and replacement of America's foundations. The Islamist goal, no different from the goal of its terrorist factions, is the establishment of Islam as the state religion and Sharia as the state legal code. Implicit is the rejection of the Constitution's core, individual liberty. The program denies a sovereign people's authority to govern itself irrespective of, re- of a religious code, as well as freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, economic liberty, and of the principle of equality under the law, particularly for women and non-Muslims. Seen in this light, impacts pans to representative democracy are really quite precious. For Islamists, democracy is the procedural route to to power, not the substantive culture of governance. Banna and Qutb completely rejected Western secular democracy. Another brotherhood eminence, the late Egyptian scholar Muhammad al-Ghazali, lauded by Western intelligentsia as the voice of moderation in the Islamic world, held the West, and in particular the United States, in utter contempt. Condemning U.S. democracy and foreign policy, as as he put it, actually a systematic violation of every virtue humanity has ever known. The unabashed Sheikh Karadawi, who I, again is the chief jurisprudential authority of the Brotherhood in the world, openly proclaims, and these are his words, we will conquer Europe, we will conquer America, not through the sword, but through Dawah, which is the so-called missionary work by which Islam is spread. Still, we obsess over terrorism. In common parlance, one is a radical Muslim only if he is a practitioner of jihadist terrorism, as if it were perfectly normal to want exactly the Sharia state the terrorist wants as long as one refrains from terrorist methods in seeking it. The U.S. government, as well as our states and municipalities, cling to this connotation. At all levels, government officials would rather stick pins in their eyes than grapple with the incontrovertible nexus between the savagery committed by Muslims and Islamist doctrine. Yet that doctrine, in the course of paving the way for terror, exhorts revolution in all areas and at all levels. We are led to believe that the only real radicals are the terrorists. Any other Muslim, no matter how supportive of terrorist goals, is deemed a moderate so long as he doesn't seem right this minute to be plotting the next Armageddon. This conscious avoidance has enabled Islamists Islamist rather, to fly below the radar, advancing their cause on two tracks. The first is Sheikh Karadawi's voluntary apartheid strategy. That is a scheme to dot the West with Islamic enclaves where the police authorities stay out and where Sharia and the local Muslim authorities are permitted to govern. The second is the mainstreaming of Islamist activist groups that exert profound influence over what is taught about Islam in American schools, what is preached to Muslims in American mosques, and what is on the policy agenda in the halls of American government. (coughs) Islamists have found an ideological soulmate in President Obama, a professed Christian whose roots in Islam run deep. Obama is the son of a Kenyan Muslim and the stepson of a Muslim from Indonesia, where Obama lived as an apparent Muslim for about four years until the age of 10. It was at the President's personal insistence that the Mubarak government in Egypt relented its opposition and invited 10 leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood to attend Obama's cloying speech on Islam and the West that was delivered in Cairo this spring. Obama, moreover, invited Ingrid Mattson, the first female president of the Brotherhood and Hamas-linked Islamic Society of North America, (ISNA) to provide over an interfaith event at the Democratic National Convention and lead an inauguration prayer session at the National Cathedral, notwithstanding that ISNA, like CARE, was identified as an unindicted co-conspirator in the terrorism financing case. Americans stunned by the relentless transfer of authority and wealth from the private to the public sector during Obama's whirlwind first months should uh, should not be surprised at all put aside what any rational person would glean from Obama's past intimacy with rabidly anti-American leftists including communists and terrorists put aside even his participation in an endorsement by the Chicago New Party a branch of the Socialist International when he began his political career as a community organizer schooled in the teachings and tactics of Saul Alinsky Obama made his philosophy plain in a 2001 interview with Chicago Public Radio. Lamenting that the Warren Court, which revolutionized individual rights, particularly in the area of abortion and uh, criminal rights, wasn't that radical after all, Obama sought to prove his point by citing the justice's failure to take on what he called the issues of redistribution of wealth and of more basic issues such as political and economic justice in society. Social justice and its corollary economic justice, our leftist code for the purported right of society's ne'er-do-wells to pick the pockets of its achievers through the coercive power of government. As Obama explained it, the Warren Court failed to, quote, break free from the essential constraints that were placed by the Founding Fathers in the Constitution. The judges instead clung to the hoary construction of our founding law as what Obama called a charter of negative liberties. <laughs> One that says what the government can't do to you. For Obama, economic justice demand, demands the positive case, what government must do in your behalf, as he put it. Jonah Goldberg fittingly calls this philosophy, the apotheosis of liberal aspirations. He was speaking, Jonah was in uh, his book liberal fascism of FDR's 1944 proposal of a second bill of Rights. A mandate that government provide a new basis of security and prosperity. The old basis, the U.S. Constitution having evidently not done the trick. The new mandates would include a useful and remunerative job, a decent home, adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health, adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident and unemployment, and a good education. Obama is determined to deliver on that dream. The dream, however, would destroy the Constitution, including the actual Bill of Rights. The framers viewed government as a necessary evil, required for a free people's collective security, but if insufficiently checked, guaranteed to devour liberty. The purpose of the Constitution was not, as Obama and FDR would have it, to make the positive case for government. It was to make the positive case for freedom. Freedom cannot exist without order and thus implies some measure of government, but it is a limited government vested with only the powers expressly enumerated, powers that intentionally were further diluted by division among the branches and between the central government and the sovereign states. As the framers knew, a government that strays beyond its defined authority or that concentrates too much power in too few actors is necessarily treading on freedom's territory. It is uh, is certain to erode the very blessings of liberty that the Constitution was designed to secure. This is not to say that there is not a positive case for government. And indeed, the Constitution states that case in its opening lines. Government is required to safeguard the rule of law and the national security. These injunctions are vital. There is no liberty without them. But Obama and the left eschew them because they don't involve social engineering. Rather than picking winners and losers, these statements of what government must do in your behalf are for everyone uniformly. Government must provide for the common defense. Government must promote the general welfare. The blessings of liberty are secured to ourselves and our posterity, not to yourself at the expense of my posterity. The question isn't what government must do in your behalf. The question is what government must do on our behalf. In general, the positive power of government is for the body politic, not the individual. Of course, individuals have rights, but those rights comprise a sphere of personal liberty against government. In that sphere, each individual is free to work hard or not, to make of his life what he will, bearing personally the consequences of choices including the consequences of failure Obama derives this framework and in doing so he is tightly allied with Islamism for both the state is supreme and the individual exists to serve the collective though Islam nominally endorses the private ownership of property much as Obama nominally endorses free market capitalism the endorsement is hyper-qualified to the point of nullification as cut explained in social justice in Islam Muslims consider property to belong to Allah. It is, quote, owned, close quote, by the professor, only under what Qadab called the sanction of law, meaning Sharia. It is better understood, he put it, as a trust in the hands of its possessor, who is thereby obliged to use it for the general good of society. Islam claims to promote individual initiative, but only for the good of the Ummah. It's teeth are set against inequalities of wealth that create what could called a wide gulf between social classes. That the concentration of wealth improves society's overall quality of life is deemed irrelevant, outweighed by the perceived humiliation and exploitation inherent in distinctions wrought by merit and achievement. On this same rationale, Islam prohibits the charging of interest. And in fact, brands it a sin 36 times worse than adultery, which under Sharia, by the way, is a capital offense. Uh, It does so because uh, it considers the charging of interest uh, to be the cause of what Qadib called disgracefully swollen proportions of capital. For the Islamist, the state is obliged to ensure Muslims not merely the opportunity for, but the guarantee of fair wages, housing, health care, and Islamic education. In fundamental ways, the state, Must be the Obama state. To be sure, Islamism and the left are not in perfect harmony. Precincts of the left remain immovably hostile to religion, though the movement generally has found religion quite useful and historically has made many the marriage of convenience with it in order to overturn the established order in one country or another. Similarly, Islam's hostility to sexual liberty, abortion, and legal equality for women and non-Muslims are cause for consternation among many progressives. All this, however, obscures the far more significant common ground. For either camp to succeed, American constitutional democracy must fail. After that first order priority is accomplished, the two can work out between themselves which is the crocodile and which is the last appeaser to be eaten. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Andy. Um, thank you very much, Andy. When you were speaking there, I, your quotation about um, the, 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 that memorandum that spoke of the grand jihad and uh, sabotaging, uh, you know, sabotaging by jihad and so on, that strikes me as that might be a useful uh, subject for a book. You think? say <laughs> an in joke. Um, <laughs> and a very funny one. <laughs> um, well, I'd like to uh, first to see if anyone on the panel would like to comment or have any, any questions on uh, anything that I said or anything uh, Andy said, herb.:
4: uh, A wise man once told me that there are three very important lessons in life one is to never climb a wall that leans towards you. The second is never kiss a woman that leans away from you. And the third is never speak after Andrew McCarthy. So I am violating these, uh, these precepts with the comments I'm about to make. Uh, I think that uh, that was a wonderful paper, Andy, and thank you very much, Roger, for having this, uh, this conference. You are to be commended yet again. One, one of the things that I think is uh, notable about both the comments that Roger made as well as Andrew is that in looking at the kind of managerial despotism that is emerging in the United States and in the West, I think there has to be some examination of the mediating structures that stood between the individual and government and that are obviously failing at the moment. If you look at mediating structures like education, educational institutions, family, church, associations, all of them are failing. Uh, The family is failing in the United States in large part because of illegitimacy. 70% of the black population is now created out of wedlock, 40% of the Hispanic population, 25% of the Caucasian population. If you look at educational institutions, we've seen the dumbing down of America. As Veblen once put it, Americans are now trained in incapacity. Uh, If you're looking at the, uh, the role of the church, the church has now become a recreational institution having relatively little to do with religion. So the mediating structures are not working. That's one of the reasons why I think you have the problem that you do in recognizing the fact that government can play such an active role in taking over the life of the individual. The other point that I would like to make, and I think that Andrew alluded to this, is the role of the Constitution. The Constitution is now an increasingly ever-flexible document, having relatively little relationship to the origins and the founding fathers' principles of what the Constitution was supposed to be. As a consequence, it no longer is the lodestar, that is that document that serves as the prescriptions for how people should behave and how governments should conduct themselves. And the last point that I would make is a point that is sometimes attributed to Jefferson, but was made, I think, most effectively by President Ford when he said that a government that can give you everything you want is large enough to take (coughs) everything you have. And that, I think, is the difficulty that we have at the moment, that you have a government that can promise a great deal. I'm reminded of the woman who during the course of the Obama campaign said, I think rather effectively, I am very keen on having Obama as president because she can help me with my mortgage payments, my car payments, and my accumulated debt, as if that is the role of government. And indeed, this is precisely what the Obama administration not only promised but is acting on. And so one, it changes the course of the Constitution, and two, allows for the enlargement of government. Uh, Thank you.
5: described in America is the same in every country in Europe, and the presence of the Muslims now is affecting our political life in ways that nobody has ever thought likely or how to take defenses against. They are too frightened, the governments, to to take any practical measures. So we saw, for instance, after the Israeli operation in Gaza in January, We saw a Muslim demonstration leave Trafalgar Square to go through past the Ritz Hotel and the gentlemen's clubs in St. James's, and the police, first of all, started just backing away from them. I've never seen police move in sort of reverse motion before, but then when the going became very rough and bricks were thrown and so on, the police actually ran. They ran away. That is a thing that we have not seen before. And in moderate countries like, like Holland, if you think of the fate of Geert Wilders or Ayan Hirsi Ali, you see that people who try to describe what's going on are then removed from the political scene altogether. We, we have unreported incidents of violence everywhere. So, again, I was talking to Daniel only this morning. I mean, not long ago, there was a riot in Birmingham where 100 people were arrested, and this didn't make front page news. They're burning hundreds of cars every night, still, in France. Nobody reports on that fact. So one of the things that's happening, I think, is that all the European governments have become rather efficient, fascist-creating machines. The, the, the reaction must be, if the politics are not going to be able to solve our problems, we'll have to take our problems into our own hands and solve them with fists and whatever comes next
0: can I just uh, ask you to expand on that a little bit um, uh, with reference to what, uh, something Daniel said last night that uh, um, <clears throat> about at least the British scene, that, you know, I'm thinking of parties like um, uh, the, the BNP and so on. I mean, are are, are there alternatives to the far-right parties and um, sometimes not even parties, but just kind of popular sentiment, that kind of uh, nativist, right-wing sentiment. Uh, Are there legitimate refuges for a healthy patriotism? The short answer to that is
5: no. I mean, uh, both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party are are terrified of patriotism. Um, They stand to get rid of national identity as best they can, and patriotism is obviously the prop of, of, of that. In the last European elections, the BNP, which is a straightforward fascist uh, movement, got 800,000 votes, and really what that is is a comment on the total failure of the, of the Conservative and Labour Party to speak for the, the, the man on the street. They aren't really fascists in any Hitlerian sense. They're fascists in the sense that they don't like to see their identity taken away, and the life that they lived with, given to a lot of foreigners who they feel have no right to be in the country anyhow. Um, UKIP is uh, another splinter, really, from the Conservative Party. It stands for the United Kingdom Independence Party, and it is only trying to re-establish the identity of Britain as it was. The BNP probably is mostly recruited from disaffected working-class socialists, um, who see privilege and money and patronage going to Muslims and don't understand why it's not coming to the whites equally. So the existence of those parties really is, 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 is I think, um, a comment on the abject leadership that is now available in the United Kingdom. And the same is true um, in pretty well every European country. Now, there, are, there is a, sli- a new phenomenon, I think, which is uh, hard to explain, but there seem to be springing up sort of self-recruited semi-fascist and perhaps even outright fascist vigilante groups. There's, there was one called the European Defence Union, which le- led this um, riot in Birmingham the other day. And there's another one whose name escapes me for the moment, I'm afraid. But th- these are just hooligans, um, people who've come together um, sp- spoiling for a fight and the authorities have no idea what to do with them uh, and no idea what to do about them, refuse debate about the subject and assume that we shall all somehow muddle through. I don't know if you saw um, the, the, the camp that's just been leveled in the north of France um, at Calais <coughs> there were about 500 Afghans. And they put up a sheet on which they painted, we are never going home, we are going to the UK. Now there are 9,000 and shortly to be 10,000 British soldiers actually fighting to make Afghanistan a possible place for those people, where they come from. And the paradox is such that it seems to me it can only be solved either by a Churchillian figure, who uh, I don't see anywhere on the horizon among our beloved politicians, or violence.
6: Or what?
5: Thugs.
6: Violence. Thugs? Violence. So, social, violence. social violence.
5: Social violence on the street.
6: Could I ask a question of, the, of everybody from who's familiar with the European situation? And let me try to be the Pollyanna. I'm not going to be a very persuasive one, but... Um, I'm thinking back to the evolution of the attitude toward the market in the 1960s and 70s. So that you had in the 1960s nobody called themselves free market except Milton Friedman and a few others, advocates of it. Uh, there were a few others, but not much. It was it was it, 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 Keynesian economics and all the rest of this was was absolutely regnant. And then over the course of the 1970s you had people writing and so forth and slowly but surely you had a shift in things so that by the 1980s free market economics was just taken for granted by a wide range of economists as being the way to go. I think of all the things that have been written in the last few years about Islam, things like Andy was talking about where, where people are saying, you know, actually it's not just the terrorists, there may be something in Islam itself that's like this. Uh, there are uh, Mark Stein's books, of course, uh, uh, the the uh, public uh, the publicizing of the demographic implications of what's going on so here's here is the hypothesis that I will let you shoot down and that is there actually has been a shift and there is an ongoing shift in sort of the underlying received wisdom about Islam and uh, the fate of europe uh, and are we at about nineteen seventy three and which the, pretty soon it will be taken for granted. Well, of course, Europe can't afford to have uh, a large uh, uh, population of, of uh, practicing uh, Muslims because it's antithetical to uh, Western civilization. I told
0: you I was gonna be Pollyanna, but, uh, but is, is, there, is,
6: there an, uh, is there something happening subterranean? Yeah,
0: I, yeah, I'd love to hear some responses to that, um, but one thing I will say, Charles, is uh, there can't, you say, there, there, obviously there can't be a large Uh, population practicing Muslims in Europe because it's antithetical to our democratic uh, traditions but there is a large population of practicing Muslims in Europe, which indeed is uh, Contreras. Uh, Andy, Let's uh, <laughs> make a I'm,
7: I'm
8: sorry. comments. One of the actually, one of the hilarious consequences of American policy is the Americans want us to take Turkey into the European Union, <laughs> which would in fact, which would in fact very, ra- and, and the, I have to tell you this, the American <laughs> government repeatedly has put enormous pressure on the Europeans to this effect. That At the present moment, Germany has the largest population in the European European Union, but the birth rate in Turkey is far higher, uh, and that would make Turkey the largest uh, European state. Uh, It would lead to a European Union, which would be very, very different already from – and it's already troubling. I think what David said was absolutely accurate, but it would be far more troubling. Um, One point I think that's interesting, and I'm trying to look at links across the Atlantic here. I think that the point that David was making was that, in essence, the politicians in Britain have failed to articulate a convincing sense of the national interest. I think that's a real practical problem that affects both of the main political streams and that leads a lot of politics to be confused and confusing. And one of the reasons for that is they have not only uh, not uh, were, not only they're embarrassed about the past and embarrassed about, as David said, notions of patriotism, but also there is the problems posed by what one, one sums up by internationalism. And if you wanted to produce a critique of President Obama, you could say there are similar Issues there that, in a sense, an embrace of internationalism or aspects of internationalism can lead to a failure to articulate an effective sense of the national interest that works in a democratic politics. And I, I think that's a real trouble in Britain. And as David said, one of the side effects can well be that uh, dissent uh, and a sense of identity moves to the political extreme, uh, which then is used by sort of left of centre government to argue for the suppression of what we would see as civil liberties. And I think we are actually moving in that direction. Um, Your society is very different, much more complex, much more multifaceted, so it's much harder to move in that direction. But it could go in the same direction. And One last point, if you're looking for similarity, because obviously you're very concerned about the health issue. One of the points that leads to extreme right wing sentiment in working class districts in Britain is a sense that public housing is allocated unfairly to the benefit of immigrant communities. So you set up a supposed public good in this case, housing, in your case of what you're debating, health. And then you are seen to allocate it unfairly, with the only form of allocation being the state, and that unfair allocation becomes the basis for violent demands or demands by political marginals for a complete change. And that is a a problem if you have public provision, mass public provision, that it it does encourage the use of often street politics to try and redistribute its benefits.
0: I think we have uh, Michael, Andy, Tim.
9: Thanks. I uh, just wanted to go back to what uh, David was saying about the rise, of the, the 800,000 votes for the BNP and what that says about Britain. And you've got to separate the leadership of the BNP from its mass supports. One of the major factors for these 800,000 votes is that before any election in the UK, before the European elections, you get all the party leaders sort of condemning the British National Party and sending joint letters to the newspapers saying, uh, whatever you do, don't vote for the British National Party. The British National Party's this huge pariah party. And I think that's, that explains a lot of the votes because politicians, particularly at present, are very unpopular in the UK after the expenses row, etc., where MPs, uh, uh, there's a big scandal about MPs charging their housing expenses to, ta- to the taxpayer. But they, I think a lot of the votes, It simply comes from the fact that if all the political leadership, if all the newspapers, if everyone says the BNP are these awful pariahs, people vote for them. So their reaction is, okay, if if all these people hate, if David Cameron, if Gordon Brown, if the leader of the Liberal Democrat Party all say these are these wicked, nasty people, the reaction then of certain working class, in certain working class areas is if if, if they're that bad, if the politicians hate them so much, I'll vote for them. I think that's a major aspect of the of the, of those votes. With the BNP, the leadership, as I said, is must be separate. The, so I think the, the, those eight hundred thousand votes, a lot of that sort of anger with the political system, anger with with Islamism, et cetera. The leadership of the BNP is. I'd go further than David. I mean, their motivation isn't really, it, more specifically, it's Nazism rather than fascism. The Nick Griffin and the, their other MEPs background is largely. They think the 1930s Germany's a good a good place. So I think that's that that's the distinction. But the other sort of non the the other not the there's no sort of mainstream political party in the UK voicing strong opposition to Islamism. In fact, the Conservative Party, if anything, has sort of criticised the Labour Party for being too. There are different, different trends within the Conservative Party, but one of the sort of lines against the Labour Party has been attacking the Labour Party for being too, too tough on Islamism, too—I mean, too, too resistant to. Uh, so there, for example, Conservative spokesmen in the House of Lords, like Baroness Warsi, who's the Community Affairs Minister, whose whole sort of critique of <coughs> Labour was that the Labour Party is much too pro-American, much too supportive of uh, the American war on terrorism. So obviously there are different strands there. But, and the, the UK Independence Party, which was mentioned before, has literally had, doesn't really deal with the Islam issue at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's got a single message, which is withdraw from the EU, and it doesn't have a sort of wider platform on which it speaks. Andy.
3: I, I just think to, to, to elaborate a little bit on, on the point Jeremy was making, aside from internationalism, there can't be a recognition of what the public interest is if it's not reported to the public what the what the underlying threats are I, I saw a, um, a story we're having a debate now about our afghanistan policy um, and one of the uh, one of the arguments that was made in favor of more uh, intervention uh, and more troops and uh, continuing with the operation is the idea that the um, that at the very least, Pakistan is at stake, and Pakistan is moderating. And in the stories I saw, it was reported, again and again, that the that the Pakistanis had uh, lost their appetite for having Al Qaeda and the Taliban uh, operate in their territory, and they relied on a Pew poll that showed that um, the Taliban how, now has a nine percent approval rating in Pakistan, and. The, uh, and Al-Qaeda has, I think, a 10%. I may have the two of those flip, but you, but you get the point. Uh, so I, uh, that was all that was reported about the poll. So I thought it would be interesting to you know, see what the rest of the poll said. If you went to the actual Pew poll, what you also learned is that the United States has a 13% approval rating, which is, which is down from 16% in the, uh, in the age of change. Um, and the other interesting thing was 80% of the population was in favor of uh, the installation of a harsh and enforcement of a harsh Sharia regime. Uh, 83% of the public supported the death penalty for apostasy. Uh, 80 plus percent supported stoning for adultery, uh, and over 80% supported putting more uh, political power in the hands of the uh, of the Islamic clerics. Now, I'm not. I'm not. I don't mean to contend that that could never be reversed. Um, I I, I have my doubts about whether it could ever be reversed but I don't see how it could ever be reversed unless you alerted people to the fact that these attitudes exist and we started to talk about them and debate them and we've in in this country we have debated um, terrorism issues since 9-11 on a very general civilizational plane and I think that turns a lot of people off who, who might be natural allies. Whereas, I think if we discussed it in terms of individual liberties, civil liberties and civil rights, people would have a much better idea of what was at stake. If we talked about this in terms of do people have a right to govern for themselves irrespective of a religious code? Or do we believe in equality under the law uh, and the, you know, the seven or eight elements not least you know can is jihad violent jihad uh, an appropriate way of advancing a political agenda um, I, I think that's the way that you have to carry the the debate to people and have that kind of a discussion uh, if you're ever going to see a movement in the attitudes about uh, about Sharia and and whether uh, whether Muslims generally uh, want government to be in accordance with that construction of Um, Mm -hmm. sharia. May may I just say one thing quickly?
5: Um, (laughs) That um, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury said that um, Sharia law was not only inevitable but desirable. The Lord Chief Justice a a few days afterwards followed up by saying that he thought Sharia law was just the very thing for England and he saw no objection to it at all. There are now, it turned out, 86 Sharia courts already operating in England. And if you pursue that line um, of thought, you will quite soon realize that there will be
2: two communities in the country. Um, can I, I, just, I very much agree with what David just said about the um, dilution of Christian culture and so on in England, and um, it's very worrying. But can I just also just pick up on what um, Charles Murray was saying, because it isn't all one way. Um, and um, I'm open to correction on all this but I think you know there's a world out there and one of the results of the tendencies in Islam in the last 20-30 um, years is that um, in many parts of the world Islam is desperately unpopular um, and I think that if you look at the growth of religions um, across the world in the last 10-20 years it's Christianity that's been booming. Um, in Africa you know, there's in Nigeria, there's Islam and Christianity, and people don't want to be Islam. It's not a very nice religion to have. Um, so that the Christianity is gaining adherence. Korea apparently is basically now a Christian society. And uh, so I'm told. Um, even in China, essentially, the Communist Party leaves Christians alone, more or less. I may be wrong about that. I'm open to correction. But that's basically, they, they just leave them alone. They're not worried about Christianity. As a, so that the. the um, and I mean, I hear what you said about Pakistan, but you've got, sorry, this probably sounds slightly, um, think about where you're coming from. Um, in Islam, yes, there's, there's disapproval of, of, of adultery, uh, and polygamy is still, in some, I'm not sure I had it all over, the, but it's still allowed in some society. So it's that, quite a different, it's different structure, different framework. Uh, um, and um, obviously, the result of um, the bombings and assassinations and so on in Pakistan. Is that Al Qaeda and Taliban are very unpopular. So you know, let's just be keep this in proportion.
0: We have uh, Herb, Daniel, and, and uh, Jim. Caruso. Two very brief points. One, uh, the reason why,
4: in my judgment, you have not seen the rise of a responsible right-wing party in Europe or across Europe is largely because social welfareism has had an insidious, but insidious effect on the populations. By and large they've been bought off. The cradle to grave psychology has had a profound effect on people's attitudes. And so you have not seen right wing parties, responsible right wing parties in large part because they have been very much seduced by the cradle to grave psychology. Now to some degree we see that in the United States where the Republican Party is largely moribund and the leader of the Republican organization, the National Republican Committee said very recently that the Republicans will stand by Medicare, the, the, no, uh, a, a, an inability or an unwillingness on the part of the Republicans to go ahead and challenge the Democrats on Medicare expenses. Now what he is saying in effect is that this is now built into the body politic in the United States. The Republicans are going to embrace almost all of the welfare legislation that the Democrats have introduced over the last several decades. The second point that I would make is very much related to Jeremy's point about internationalism. I wouldn't call it internationalism, however. I would call it transnational progressivism. And transnational progressivism now plays a very significant role in the Obama administration with Amy, um, uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, Amy Gutman, Richard Sennett, uh, among others, who have been re- writing about and, uh, this, this form of, of, uh, of internationalism, which I call transnational progressivism, suggesting that the United States should adhere to international codes. It can be seen through the Treaty of the Seas, it could be seen through nuclear weapons uh, restrictions, it could be seen through the, uh, the global warming efforts. But there's no question that transnational progressivism is now very much in vogue, not only here but on the other side of the Atlantic as well, where we're now talking about the inability to create a sense of national interest and national sovereignty because we are now talking about some form of transnational, uh, transnational acceptance. Now, this is, this is a very, very significant development, because it is the UNization of the United States American foreign policy. So when Obama goes to the United Nations, what he is saying, in effect, is national sovereignty will be sacrificed, largely because we have a new direction in American foreign policy. And that is also true in many of the European capitals. So that, that changes the way in which we think about national interest. National interest is no longer what it once was. It is now a very different concept.
0: Uh, I think uh, Daniel Johnson next. I I wonder, Herb, just as a footnote, what happens if these countries can no longer afford this cradle-to-grave gold-plated welfare uh, subsidy? Uh, I mean, I forget how many people are supporting every retiree in France now. It's not many, and it's going to get fewer and fewer, but that's a question for another moment. Daniel.
7: Well, I know we're all uh, wanting our coffee, so uh, I'll be very, very brief. A couple of little points uh, to pick up on. Uh, Andrew, uh, when Obama made that speech in Cairo, according to one source that I talked to, uh, President Mubarak was so angry about the presence of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood in the front row uh, that he boycotted that speech and insisted that when Obama met him, it was in one of his palaces, where the President had to ascend a long flight of stairs uh, to reach the Pharaoh at the top of the, uh, the thing. In other words, you know, there was a certain symbolis- symbolic revenge uh, that, uh, that the old man took on, on Obama. So just a, a, an interesting point there, that um, uh, it doesn't seem to be well understood in Washington uh, how the Muslim Brotherhood is actually seen in a country like, like Egypt. Um, secondly, uh, I, 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 uh, I just wanted to um, uh, make the point about Nigeria, which, uh, which Tim mentioned, that uh, the archbishop, uh, I mean, I, it wasn't quite clear from the report I read whether this was, I think this was actually uh, an Anglican archbishop rather than a Catholic one in Nigeria, was quoted uh, a few days ago warning that Islam was now a deadly threat to Christians throughout Africa. I mean, it was a really, really alarmist sermon that he gave. Um, And I do think, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right, of course, that that Christianity uh, is a far more beneficial religion for most people in Africa or Asia. Uh, You know, it, it, it tends to be associated with prosperity and self-improvement and and many other things, uh, whereas Islam tends to be associated with poverty in in divided countries like Nigeria. Nonetheless, uh, there is force majeure. I mean, the fact is that persecution is now going on on such a huge scale across the Middle East, across Africa, uh, and and I'm sure also in parts of of the Far East, um, that uh, however much it is true that Christianity uh, has it has grown, uh, and in in wherever it is is, is free free to be adopted, um, you know, voluntarily where there are there, there aren't constraints, then it, it does very well. Not sure about China. Uh, I mean, there is still a lot of persecution in China of of the uh, certainly of the Catholic Church. Um, you know, there is a kind of state fake church that the Chinese have set up, which is permitted, but but uh, ordinary Catholics are still persecuted there. But uh, but the fact is that um, Christianity has now been driven out of large parts of the world where it had existed for thousands of years. So, uh, and Europe, of course, and America have done practically nothing about this. I mean, uh, you know, it, is, it is a shameful chapter, really, in our, in our history. Sorry, I didn't really mean to go on about that. But um, uh, one, one final point. Have you noticed how our governments have completely stopped talking about the war on terror? In fact, in some cases, they've, they've announced that it's over. Um, uh, Overseas our,
0: contingency uh, uh, operations is yeah, what we call our, them now. Our, our
7: foreign secretary, David Miliband, actually went to the hotel uh, in Mumbai, the Taj Mahal Hotel, uh, where the worst atrocity in India uh, took place not very long ago, and announced the end of the war on terror. Well, I've got one question for these guys. Okay, if it's over, who won? Mm-hmm. J- Jim, and then... Uh,
10: Uh, Thank you. Herb, I think, made the point that I was going to make far better than I I could make it. And let me associate myself with the remarks over here about internationalism and with Herb's comments about transnational progressivism, as he calls it. Herb did not mention the the name of Harold Coe, who is in the State Department now. Uh, He is a leader, has been in the law school world, of something called international human rights. Uh, A few years ago when he welcomed the students to Yale, Yale's law school, he was the dean. He said, uh, welcome to the Republic of Conscience, uh, to the students. And uh, his view, and the view of many people in the Obama administration, is that the various international treaties that the United States has signed binds us to various rules and declarations that these institutions have made so that uh, uh, the International labor, labor Organization may say that the United States has been deficient in its treatment and recognition of labor unions and that there is a consequence, an obligation for us to restore that in law. Similar things may be said about health care. This is their view. Uh, it's already been said about our treatment <laughs> of, uh, of uh, in the interrogations. Uh, so. I I have dismissed all this over the years as something that could never gain any traction. However, I dismissed all the campaigns about global warming and so on some (laughs) years ago, too, as being utterly silly. And uh, I think the fact of the matter is that that the people who are in charge of many of our elite institutions, as has been said, uh, have embraced these ideas. This is certainly true in the law schools, and that's probably true in Europe uh as well as it is in the United States. So uh this is something that the Obama administration has associated itself with. They they hope to get more traction in the courts uh with this sort of thing. And this is precisely the kind of thing Andy has been writing about uh in the context of the war on terror. And I note that I'm not sure about this, but didn't I was away. The United Nations issue a report condemning Israel for its uh treatment of uh people in Gaza. Uh, and I think there will be some pressure on the Obama administration to somehow recognize and do something about that. So
0: anyway. Um, I, I'd like to uh, now open it up to um, anyone in the audience who'd like to uh, comment or ask a question. Uh, Callie has a microphone, so if you could just uh, flag her down and uh, she'll bring it over to you. Any uh, Bill? Oh, oh, Joe, yeah, go ahead.
4: I'd like to ask David. David, a question. David, I don't. I'm not very optimistic about the chances of
0: any of our governments being able to protect us from
4: this onslaught. Why wouldn't I desire a Birmingham-style crusade to push the Muslims back through the Channel?
0: I
7: didn't, didn't hear what he said. Uh, he had, he had no confidence in the ability of governments to uh, to resist Islam. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't you favor a a
4: crusade to push? Well, uh, he said it was up either. Social violence was, right. was a likely outcome right, to protect
5: ourselves. Well, all the European governments pretend that this is not a not none of this is happening. And France, for instance, still has huge no go areas. They're burning hundreds of cars every day, and the French government turns a blind eye to that. Um, the same is true in Italy. Um, They're burning slightly fewer cars in Italy, but there's a lot of public violence, a lot of threats. The Muslims are making um, a point, really, that they want to be separatist and eventually, as Sheikh Karadawi says, they're going to to take over. Now, it seems to me that that every government has got to face up to that, but they don't. Um, And the longer they leave it, the harder the problem will become. There are already um, areas in England where it's unwise to go if you are not a Muslim. And this is something we haven't seen before. This is, this is new. And they have their own community setups and their own, if you like, parallel structure. And the police are terrified of it. The police I discovered the other day, which I hadn't, hadn't known, have separate Islamic units who've been taught sensitivity towards Muslims, which means under no circumstances arrest anybody. So you are watching the build-up of a community that wishes to be separate within a community that doesn't want to have them. Now, it seems to me um, inevitable that the community that doesn't want to have them, which is still the majority, is one of these days going to say enough is enough. And we shall see vigilante squads, and we shall see all sorts of things we haven't seen in Europe for a long, long time. Now, some of these countries, you know, like Italy, for example, when the going gets rough, can be very rough indeed. Um, Not so long ago, a French policeman um, was convicted for murdering a hundred Algerians in 1962. Um, So there is, in my judgment, every prospect of ultimate violence. Now how long that will be postponed, I cannot say. But I think you can also see it reflected in the European attitude towards Israel. That Israel is being made some kind of um, scapegoat for what is happening in Europe and it's a very ugly prospect and it seems to me it must finish um, on the streets. Now I don't see any European politician who would do what Churchill did in the 30s for example and describe the situation as it really is. You'd need some courage to do that. You know, when Enoch Powell spoke years ago in the 60s of rivers running with blood, it was the end of his political career. So you would need to be a very great Churchillian figure now in order to come forward and describe reality as it is. But there it is. The head of MI6, she has now retired, the later head of MI6 said that there were 2,000 Muslim terrorists operating in Britain and another several more thousand sympathizers. Two thousand! They can do quite a lot of harm. And it seems to me that if there is another outrage, um, I can't answer what the British public would do. I think that the British Empire wasn't um, um, ha- happen in a fit of absent-mindedness. It happened because the English are extremely bloody-minded. And when the going gets rough, they'll be very bloody-minded again. I may be wrong about that. It may be that years of socialism has rotted their spirit. But I think the same is also true about the French. And when the going gets rough in France, the CRS are out there with truncheons. And I I, I couldn't really say this in a public um, place, but I'm going to risk it to say it now. It seems to me, inevitable that there's going to be civic disturbance of a very serious kind in every European country. I'd be arrested for saying that in England.
10: Uh, Bill? It's <clears throat> a question for Mr. McCarthy. Uh, disregarding
4: whether there's the public will to do it, what would be the effect of cutting off the external funding to the Muslims, both here and in Europe? You mean the, the
3: funding from the U.S. government? No,
10: I mean the funding from the Saudis
3: and the... Uh, if you cut off the Saudi funding today, yeah. it, would, it would have a long-term effect, but it would not have a, much of a short-term effect, I think, because there's so much money in the pipeline and there's such an infrastructure that's here already that it would take a long time before that dried up. But the long-term effect of it would be that you'd get, uh, you you would undercut the propaganda aspect of of the strategy. And BANA had a seven-part strategy for a sort of a ground-up Islamic revolution. And it depends a lot in the early stages on both propaganda and control over the Islamic schools and social institutions. So if you, could, if you could dry that up, I think that it would have a long-term beneficial effect. But there's so much, I mean, this has gone on since the 1950s, and there is so much of an infrastructure that's been built up in the United States and throughout Europe that it would take a while before you would see the effects of it drying up.
0: Peter? Uh, no. And anyone else like to make a comment or ask a question? Barbara. Just wait for Callie to give you the microphone.
11: Uh, Thank you very much for this marvelous meeting. Um, I see all these brilliant people sitting around the table. The concentration of knowledge is stupendous. Um, The only opportunity that we have to affect any kind of change, I think, is to reach out to our congressmen in America Uh, and try to do something perhaps via uh, internet or Facebook or some sort of project that we can take this and put this alarm out. I think that if all your information is is, is, uh, summarized in 10 bullet points and just given out to the public just in, in, in 10 bullet points, you will not, ha- under Sharia, you will not have this, that, or the other thing. If you could figure out with all your brain power how to get this to the common man and to actually uh, t- take away the paralysis, that terror breeds fear, which breeds paralysis. If you could do something about this paralysis, which actually I'm feeling it at the moment. I, I feel absolutely paralyzed by this information because it's, we're, we're entering it. You're absolutely right, David. We will have... War soon.
0: Anyone else like to make I, a comment? I think
1: I think the answer or the uh, future, uh, the, the answer to the problem that David was limiting is uh, in numbers. While it uh, takes someone of extraordinary courage in the political field right now, if Numbers of aggressive young candidates for office come forward. They, w- they will, in their numbers, and that could be as few as five or six, or a few in a given state. They will find the courage, the impulse to state these things pretty aggressively. They will doubtless be accused of being fascist, etc. But in just a moderate number encouragement they'll get from box et etc., and talk radio, I think that the barrier, that the barriers will be broken down fairly quickly, that doubtless will be, will encourage some violence. seem to be possible to discuss in a public